0: Hi, everyone, and thank you for joining another episode of Voices on the Side with me, Leah Kim. With every guest I've had the honor of interviewing this season, I've had to try my best to not spend the entire time telling them what a big fan I am. And this was very much the case with today's guest, Danny Coleman. Danny is the director of training and head trainer at PVolv a science-led workout method that combines low-impact functional fitness with resistance-based equipment that you can do right at home. She trains none other than Jennifer Aniston, as well as all of us who join remotely through the Pvolve app. You'll hear more about Pvolve in this episode, mainly how much I love it and how much I love Danny as a teacher. Danny's story is rooted in her biracial identity as both Japanese and Caucasian, which she recognizes as both a place of privilege and a place of isolation. I think anyone raising mixed-race kids like my family is will really appreciate hearing about Danny's experiences and challenges. As an example, her parents supported her love of dance, which isn't typical of Asian cultures, but they required academic excellence, which almost all Asians and immigrants can relate to. Danny connected with her Asian identity later in her womanhood, but she's been faced with that question, but what are you? throughout her life as people try to figure out what box to put her in. Danny is passionate about supporting underserved AAPI communities, especially in light of her anger around anti Asian hate crimes, an anger I share, which inspired this entire podcast to begin with. We talk about the necessity of going beyond that token diversity card and actively calling in different identities. We share our observations about the fitness and wellness industries, where we see that things are getting better, but we also recognize that there is still much more to be done. I really tried not to gush about how much I adore Danny throughout the episode, but I think once you listen in, you'll totally be on the same page. So please enjoy this heartfelt conversation with the very magnetic Danny Coleman. Let me get my like fan moment out of the way. (laughs) My youngest is about two and a half years old and she was born during the pandemic. Although I'm a yoga teacher by trade, which I mentioned to you, I haven't, I had already like taken a break from teaching prior to becoming pregnant with her. And then um I was so worried about COVID and the baby, you know, keeping her safe. Like I stopped going to classes and like I found it really hard to get back into things after this pregnancy. Just like I felt really stuck in my body. And I have to say, like with all the things that I've tried, it it's the workouts, it's the p-ball workouts with you that has like instigated change in my body. And I only got the equipment bundle maybe like six weeks ago. Like it hasn't been that long. And even like, I typically do the short, shorter workouts, like 20, the 28 minute workouts. I feel like are the ones I can like, (laughs) I feel like. There's something about being the convenience of doing it at home and my own time um, when my kids are home too. But beyond that, it really has been your classes and that I have not taken a class that I didn't really appreciate and that I like I built heat from and, you know, I yeah. felt really good about, but I always go back to your classes and a lot of it I'm I'm aware now as I've gotten older has to do with the fact that I'm seeing somebody who I can relate to in identity you know? And I haven't really thought about my yoga background in that way, but I have since. And all my favorite teachers, they're white. And I mean, I love them. Some of them are still my close confidants, but like, there's something really motivating in taking class with somebody that I'm like, oh, I, you know, I mean, I, I'm, my guess is you're mixed race.
1: Yes. right yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. but now you know <laughs> i i
0: still like i didn't i still like when i see you i'm like oh if she can do it i could do it too because there's like a resonance you know in and in our identity and i swear that's part of why i'm like okay i'm going to set my alarm for like 5:45 and i'm going to get up and squeeze in one of these workouts with Danny and like i swear within a couple weeks i felt like my pants were fitting more comfortably and I don't, I just, I'm so thankful. <laughs> Thank I'm, you. So th- I'm so thankful to social media is how I found out about it too. You know, just cause like, I haven't been seeking studios in person just because of COVID and the mm-hmm. logistics of children. And so I just, I honestly didn't know about it until I saw started seeing it on Instagram a f- couple months ago. You're amazing. The workout's amazing. And um Thank
1: you.
0: <laughs> but yeah, the big thing that got me was like, oh my God, I think Danny's mixed race. So <laughs> I would love to hear about how you identify about your family of origin.
1: Yes. Um, well, you nailed it. As we, you know, considered, I think in the AAPI community, I'm HAPA. So I am half Japanese and then a big mix of different. Swedish, Irish, French, um, from my father. So my mother's Japanese. My dad is Caucasian. Um, and I'm biracial, and I think it's a very intriguing place to be in this time and place. And it's also something that's definitely more prevalent now, especially being in California. I do feel like I am around a lot of mixed race people and just diversity in general, which is one of the things that I love about places like New York and California, and having grown up in those areas. So I was born in California, actually, San Maria, California. Um, but grew up mostly on the East coast in New Jersey, New York, went to college in New York um, and then moved back here about nine years ago to pursue a little bit more commercial style dance, but half Japanese. And I would say what I was so excited to talk to you most about and listening to some of your previous episodes is you have so many people that love and celebrate and have always identified with their Asian side or, you know, their Asian origin. And um, that was something I came to learn later on in life. I would say, honestly, I felt like a part of me had been missing or that I wasn't identifying as with my Japanese side. I grew up a little bit more Americanized, I would say. My mom was born in California as well. Um, And I would say her mom, you know, and my great grandmother are more tied to our Japanese culture and it's something that I've definitely learned to embrace and love because I feel like I was a little self hating growing up, and but I, but I didn't realize it till later, if that makes sense. So I'm kind of at this new place with myself and identity. I'd say, obviously, largely due to all the reckoning of the pandemic and all of the um the conversations, and just growing up. And you know, I think when you're younger, you're just a little bit more naive or ignorant to things. So I feel like I'm unlearning a lot,
0: yeah. I think like especially with um japanese families because i think of all the east asian races or ethnicities i never know which is the exact correct term to use <laughs> but like the japanese have been in america for much longer than chinese or koreans like my parents immigrated you know i was mm-hmm. born in the states but they were not and i feel like most other koreans and chinese Friends of mine, at least, have similar stories. And whereas with Japanese, I I remember meeting like fifth generation Japanese people, you know, and Mm -hmm. so I can understand how that would take you a bit further from that part of your identity because your mother and, you know, everybody that came before her, they had like that layer, that generation of having assimilated into American culture already. Whereas for me, I was born to immigrants that did not feel American were not technically American, but did you, and like, I think like the self, the internalized kind of self-hate thing, which I think whether you're mixed race or not, like my friends and I, who are also full Asian, we're all only just finding language to understand that, you know? And mm-hmm. I think within all the different like non-white races, Asian's have a more blurry understanding of where we stand within American culture because we've always been like white adjacent. Yeah, The system has considered us different to Black people. That's been very intentional through like systemic oppression. Mm -hmm. But I think because our Asian culture generally, we tend to be, we don't want to ruffle feathers. We don't want to, you know, we don't also, I don't know how it is in your family. I'd be really curious to hear more, but in my family, like you don't talk about difficult, awkward, uncomfortable, bad things like you Mm -hmm. sort of there's, there's this like, almost like this, let's just pretend that didn't happen. And let's just keep our eye on like, whatever the goal is, which in my family was get good grades and get a good job, you know, like that kind of stereotypical pursuit of the American dream. And when you were growing up, because you did have an American, your mother's Japanese, but she's American, she's Japanese American. Mm -hmm. Like, was she more communicative about like emotional stuff than maybe you would kind of assume people from immigrant families
1: were? So I think my mother um, and I's relationship uh, is something that I've really just grown to love. We've got closer as I've gotten older um, and she's actually opened up more as she's gotten older. It's been to watch my father handle emotions and to watch my mother handle emotions are two opposite sides of the coin. They're very much opposites attract. But when I think about my mother, I think of her as the one of the strongest women that I know. And it was something that I didn't understand again until I was like later on in my womanhood. She was someone that, you know, growing up emotions weren't talked about. I was very much raised on a tough love mentality by my mother, you know, and this is one of my favorite things to talk about. When I was dancing at one point when I was younger, I forgot my routine on stage. And I think I just cried on stage for two minutes standing there. And my mom bought the recording and made me rewatch it to, as a learning lesson of like, you know, you stood on stage and you cried for two minutes, but you didn't run off and I wasn't allowed to like leave the stage as, you know, a lesson from my coach. But that was the way that very much I, I grew up with my Asian mother was if you failed at something, we learned from it, we did better. And Emotions were something that I think she also learned more about later on in her life and how to handle because her upbringing, I think definitely stifled it. So I have a little bit of both sides where my father was very communicative and talked a lot about feelings and my mother was very much put your head down, do the work, don't talk about it, shoulder everything. And now, having grown up, I can see my mother in a lot of different beautiful lights that I just didn't understand when I was younger. Because you just think, "Oh my gosh, my mom is." She was the one we were nervous about and scared about when we were growing up. My brothers and I, my brothers and I, we would be, <laughs> if we got that, you know, that bad grade, and I would avoid my mom and go to my father if I had something tough that I was going through. I always knew my mom would be the disciplinary more so Mm. in the relationship or have these standards that weren't necessarily spoken about, but were understood from a very young age of how it was supposed to act, how it was supposed to be. Um, And I credit her for my resilience and my work ethic. And, but also just, yeah, I had to unlearn a little bit that it's okay to say you need help. It's okay to show vulnerability. That is something I think she's learning later on in life that we're all processing together as family. It's like vulnerability is okay. Saying, you know, you need help is like okay. Saying mentally you're struggling, that's okay. But it's definitely something that we've learned later on, and that I've had a lot of different chapters with my mother throughout my life uh, in a really beautiful way.
0: That's so amazing that she's <laughs> evolved to be open to that. You know, I think that's really unique that. Yeah. Usually as people get older, we all get more set in our ways, you know, that idea of like, yeah. however your parents were it usually gets further cemented as they get older. So that's a really beautiful thing that she's actually, you're, you've gotten closer, emotionally closer, more able to talk about things. Why do you think was, how, how did that
1: happen? <laughs> well, knowing um, my grandmother, I, uh, she was definitely, I think, brought up in a way that again, similar women kind of took the back seat. And you just provided without question to everyone around you, and just gave without second thought to it. And I definitely think it's a generational trauma, I guess, or generational learning um, passed on for sure. Because I I see it in all of um, on my mom's side, all of you know, my grandmother, my great grandmother, my aunts, the way that just they just both move emotion through their bodies, um, how they carry it, and how they carry other people's responsibilities as well
0: your mom was supportive of you dancing from a young age. Is that, that also feels exceptional because it's not a typical Asian (laughs) parent supported, you know, like field to go towards. It's not like doctor or accountant or whatever, you know? So there was already, and the fact that she married, like your dad is Caucasian. There's like the openness was already there. That's really different from a more insulated. There are a lot of Asian cultures that are much more insulated, right? Mm -hmm when did you start dancing?
1: Since I was two and um, they've always been very supportive. My parents I feel very lucky about it. I always say by the time I was there, every family needs one artist and I happen to be that one. So, but with that, uh, always very supportive of my performance career, always very supportive of who I wanted to be. And I feel grateful for that. With that though, I did have those expectations that I was going to get straight A's. If I didn't get Mm. straight A's, I wasn't allowed to go to dance class. And it was very much that, um, yeah, that standard of a Japanese mother that is, you know, I think prevalent in a lot of Asian communities and still to the state of excellence in your field. And if I wanted to be, you know, that's why I also think that dance video resonates so loudly to me because she did want me to be like the expert in my field and to do the best that I could and to succeed. And, um, but I was, while she supported dance, I was still held to those academic standards very much so um, outside of my dancing career, but it was, I I felt very supportive growing up. I feel very lucky. Yeah.
0: Do you feel like that was a good call though? Like that she, it doesn't sound like you're, you have any resentment or anything that she expected the good grades of you on, you know, of you like at the same time as being supportive of dance, like, or did you feel like it was a little too much?
1: (laughs) I definitely felt overwhelmed at some points, but I really feel like it's uh, I'm the person I am because of my learnings younger and because of, um, the demand in a way that, you know, they were always realistic though. They did let me be human. They did let me have moments of failure and and to learn from it. Um it wasn't to be perfect all the time, but the expectation was that more than not, I would work hard and uh yeah hit those excellent standards. But yeah. Yeah.
0: I, I mean, I, the whole concept of a tiger mom, right? Like that whole, Yes. Yeah. So <laughs> I definitely also had that. And when I was growing up, it felt oppressive. It felt unfair. Mm-hmm. Um, But now that I'm older and especially that I am a mom, I can really appreciate that. And it is a gift in a way to the child to be pushed, you know, for us to understand and figure out like how much we can actually achieve. I think like softness also has to be there so as a mom now that's what i understand because that's what i lacked and um i do see myself having high not my daughter is two so she's Mm -hmm. i don't expect things of her um but you know my son is nine so i do have i see myself expecting more of him and because that's how I rate I was raised I feel like I naturally go into that and I'm also very aware of like the emotional piece the friendship piece the affectionate piece also has to be part of it so I I even though like I felt resentful of how I was raised a lot of the time um I appreciate it because I know that that's where like my discipline comes from my work ethic comes Mm -hmm. from and all that um so you did you have you had your older brothers what was like your elementary school kind of like makeup? Like, were there a lot of mixed kids? Was it really diverse in New Jersey? I guess it
1: depends where in New Jersey you grew up. Mm-hmm. So I felt very fortunate and I have this like vivid memory of first, I guess, being exposed to like my first Asian community. I grew up in Paramus, New Jersey, where I wired like, pretty much a credit my middle to high school. I went to high school there days. Um, So my, yeah, large part of my youth there and, There was a moment when I first moved to New Jersey, I was in fifth grade and the crowd that I was initially hanging out with was definitely more white-based, Caucasian-based. We did have a large Korean population in New Jersey. And then there was this moment where I started hanging out more with the Korean community and I instantly felt like there was a part that I was missing in my life. I instantly felt welcomed by the community. It felt similar. And a large part of my friendships throughout high school were... Korean based and Asian based, which was incredible because there's just so many parts of culture there that I just didn't have exposure to at a younger age. And I think up until that point, those were, you know, I didn't realize that there was the little, you know, little sayings that I was really trying to identify with just my Caucasian side. And I didn't realize that, but I felt embarrassed at moments to be Asian growing up, or I felt uncomfortable about it because it wasn't always around me. So I really am grateful for that experience in New Jersey because it definitely made me more at home in myself and something that I felt proud of and started to build that pride of, you know, being half Asian and didn't realize that I was mostly identifying with my Caucasian side up until that point. But um, it was a nice diverse. I think it was like 30% or twenty, like five to 30% in my high school experience was uh, Asian identifying. So I felt very fortunate for that. And with that, that same experience of I had Caucasian friends and Asian friends and I felt like I had a little bit of both communities in me.
0: And did people know immediately when they like? <laughs> did you get the question of like, oh, where? Like, because oh, I, I all mean, the time. I, yeah, I can re- I feel like I can recognize Hapa people? My kids are Hapa, yes. and you know, just being Asian, um, there's like, there's like this like radar that you're like, oh, I think that person is part Asian. But I feel like outside of that, I can imagine people probably had difficulty placing you.
1: I get the, you know, where are you from? And then they like, yeah, but where are you from? And what are you? No, but like, what are you? You know, that question, you're like, okay, this is how to, where to put me in a box. Yes. I got that all the time. And just, I mean, so many different ways throughout life outside of high school. Right. I just like consistently I did. um, And I was very active in school. So I was on the debate team and then I was a cheerleader and then I was class president. So I felt like I, did all these things that again like checking those boxes of I have to be great at all these things and um, wanted to as well, but I definitely felt like I crossed over a lot in different different ways, and I think that's one of the most interesting things about being biracial that I sit with is the isolating part of it, but also the privilege that comes with it. Is you know you're you kind of look Asian, you kind of look Caucasian but you're not quite one or the other. So both sides, you know, you can gravitate towards both sides in in certain situations and also feel isolated in certain situations by that as well.
0: Did you feel, it sounds like like that you said you met a lot of Korean people when you got Mm -hmm. to your school in fifth grade and that most of your friends were Asian. Did you feel like, it sounds like they they had no problem accepting you even though that you were not full Asian, right? Like it sounds like they just... Which I feel like is, I mean, I think I've heard stories that go either way. Sometimes, right? Yeah. Um, and I really am so curious about how my kids will find it growing up because, like, I I feel really sensitive to creating a a day to day life for them where they are not feeling like the token. Asian, like the token non-white person, because I did feel that a lot through my upbringing and I, it didn't feel great. You know, I, I, I just, I really remember distinctly seeing like my class photos, you know, when like you take classroom photos at the end of the year or whatever. And there was always like very notable, a couple tokens that were not white. Mm -hmm. And um, I was always growing up in California and the sun all the time. I was like always quite dark, quite Mm -hmm. And so I just remember seeing like my brown face and my black hair just standing out amongst a sea of like mostly white kids. And like, I hated the way I Mm -hmm. felt. Like I felt, I felt different and weird and ugly. And I am still carrying that as a mother now, but I have to remind myself, like my kids are mixed race. They're not, they're not fully, they do look more Asian than white, but they're not, you know, and I'm so curious to see like, how that will like how they will respond to their environments and how they will be treated I mean they're still so young that like I don't know mm-hmm. but actually so we just started my daughter in ballet class this summer
1: uh, I love okay
0: I mean it's like it's called like twinkle toe twinkle toes twos or something and they just yeah <laughs> I don't know I she's not learned any actual ballet yet they are mostly just getting used to being in a class and you know following directions. yeah but it's really sweet. They're all in their little tutus and um, she's very stereotypically girly. She like wears her tutu most days at home, just like that's like <laughs> what she wants to wear. But I'm watching her and there's two kids of color in the class and it's very obvious. And it, it like, and I see that. I'm like, you, you. it's a drop-off class, but the parents can look through the little window and watch them. Yeah, And I can just see like she... Stands out so much. And I'm like, it makes me just like not worry, but it's something I notice. And it's something Mm -hmm. that like I wonder when will she notice if, Mm -hmm. you know, or will she? And even as like our world is getting more um, race conscious and more interested Mm -hmm. in there being social justice and not leaving uh, non white groups out, like. America is constructed the way it is, yeah. right? I mean, even for you, um, amongst your, I feel like actually the p trainers, there are, it's a good mix, right? It's mm-hmm. a pretty good mix, but I yeah. feel like you're the only Asian trainer, are you? I don't know if that's accurate. I so, think
1: so. Yeah. Um, we have some Asian trainers in the studio, but probably on demand, yeah. I think. One of the reasons I got into, you know, I definitely growing up to realize when I was other than in ballet class, especially danced, and you know it is an expensive sport and it's an expensive art and something uh, I was always aware of that I was more of a minority in these in these rooms and situations throughout college. And one of the things that I got into fitness and wellness for too is to make more seats at the table, and it's actually something I take very seriously at my role in Pivov is the ability to like hire trainers. Um, And one of the things I pride myself for the LA team specifically is that it is a diverse group of women and I want everyone to come to the studio and also we're open to all identifying. It's just, we have currently um, women identifying instructors, but it's, I want everyone to walk into a space and feel like you do when you see me on demand, that there is someone that looks like me and that all bodies are welcome. All people are welcome um, in fitness and especially boutique, it can be a very predominantly white area, you know, and wellness. And I'm glad we're opening up the conversations to different bodies. And like you said, uh to different just identities in general in fitness, but it's definitely something I'm super passionate about because it was something that I was always very aware of <laughs> growing yeah. up is, yeah, I'm, I'm the minority here, you know? Um, and then also this weird thing, like you said, of I'm the minority here, but I'm also sometimes the, the ways that people you're like, okay, I'm the diversity car, you know what yes. I mean? At, at certain points you're like you like me because I do look more Asian than my white side. And you have this, like I said, this interesting place of privilege and isolationism about racial person. And I'm aware of it, you know, like you said, we're kind of this own little pocket in America with how Asians I think are viewed. Um, so it's interesting. Were
0: you a trainer prior to joining people? Were you like a personal trainer just on your own, like running your own thing?
1: Yeah. So I've been in fitness now, I think for about 10 years, I, uh, was personal training certified and I was training private clients. And then also just I've kind of been in boutique fitness a lot in my fitness career. And
0: did you always feel like you had the doors were open for you? Like, did you ever feel any sort of, I mean, cause when I was teaching, um, I definitely didn't feel like I was at a disadvantage because I was Asian. I didn't feel that in the moments Mm -hmm. of like auditioning for, to teach at a studio or whatever. And actually with Nike, when I got involved with them, they specifically were looking for like, actually in their call out to like looking for to fill this role of a yoga ambassador. They wanted an Asian person, which I thought was, I mean, I was like, this, this was like almost, it was 50, over 15 years ago now, but I didn't really think that much of it. I don't know. But in hindsight, looking at all my peers, in various Mm -hmm. places, I'm like, Oh my God, I'm often like the token age, like the token Asian person. (laughs) And, but I didn't feel like doors were not open to me. You know, like, I didn't feel like people Mm -hmm. were like, Hmm, I don't know. It's like, we, we'd rather have a white person. Like I didn't ever feel that. And yet I'm confused as to, well, why was I always the token? You know, (laughs) why weren't there more Mm -hmm. Asian people? And I, I know the, fitness, yoga, wellness landscape has changed a lot uh, more recently. Did you notice that like that you, when you were, did you ever train out of gyms or were you more just one-on-one like your own business?
1: Some, some gyms and some one-on-one. And I feel the same to you that I feel lucky that I didn't feel like something wasn't available to me because I was Asian, but I did always take note of that when the room was predominantly white and Caucasian. And I still, to this day, in anything that I do, I'm looking at the room, and I want it to be better than it still is. You know, we still have so much work to do across all landscapes in the United States, but with my direct area that I'm in, you know, this fitness realm, it still needs. We still need way more representation, way more accessibility, um, and resources. It was definitely something that I just took note of a lot, especially, yes, in this industry, I would just walk in and be like, okay, I'm the only person that's not white identifying in this room of 30 people, you know, but I never felt like an opportunity wasn't presented to me for that reason. And at some points, yeah, like being half Asian was a great thing with a company, you know, with certain companies.
0: When you say 30 people, you mean like students, like fellow students that are coming into a class or like at a training type of thing, maybe?
1: Yeah, or like even like makeup of a company, you know, uh, even looking at those things or yeah. companies that I've worked for in the past, just when you just come in, you're like, okay, what's the breakdown here? And you're realizing, you know, I, I want to be in a room where there's all people leading the charge, you know, yeah. and I want to work towards more spaces where that's happening. Um, and I do think again, like we're expanding that conversation and those things are happening across all professions in a lot of real ways, which is great. But yeah, just to be times I'd be in a company that, and I'd be like, oh, interesting. Yeah. I
0: mean, I think it is something where like the effort has to be made. The different backgrounds, the different identities have to be called in like intentionally. Because mm-hmm. if we just let things go with how they naturally flow, it's always going to lean more white. Yeah. And, um, Not even just white, but like the mainstream identifying cis het at all, you know, people yeah. just like there's a certain... Main kind of uh, body type, race, whatever that is, at the forefront, and mm-hmm. it's a difficult thing because it's not necessarily done maliciously, or you know, like that's. I think that's why I brought up the thing of I never felt like doors were closed to me, and yet once I got through, I was aware that I, didn't. yeah. So that means a door has to be closed to most of the people that look like us, because otherwise, where are they? Mm-hmm. And I feel similarly in the schools, just noticing there is more of an effort to make student bodies more racially, di- not just racially, but diverse in all the different ways. Mm-hmm. But when the the teachers, the faculty are not representative in the same way, that continues the the divide and the issue you know like this is feeling of kids of color not seeing teachers that look like them similar to how i felt just like not feeling the most motivated trying all these other workout classes and then suddenly coming across your classes at pvolve and being like super motivated and i part of it is for mm-hmm. sure like i think the method is amazing and the equipment like makes a really big difference I did notice from the beginning, like there's an array of teachers and even an array yes. of bodies. And like, mm-hmm. I appreciate that because there are some other workouts I've tried where I get this like feeling of almost like I'm demoralized and I don't even really know mm-hmm. why, but like this different workout I'm thinking of. And I follow, I do some of their workouts on the app and I followed their Instagram and it's always just people that don't look like me at all. It just feels like Mm-hmm. I just feel like I'm on the outside, like trying to join this thing where I'm not really invited, you know, like, so I wonder what your live classes, do you feel yeah. like a good diverse mix of people coming in, whether it's race or, you know, like body type? Cause I know like when I taught yoga, a lot of times people felt really afraid to come in because they're like, Oh, I need to lose weight first before I come to class because they had this idea that was often correct, that it was just going to be all super fit, super skinny people in class, and they don't want to put themselves in that situation. Like, what do your classes look like?
1: I feel very fortunate in the sense, especially at the LA studio, it's a very diverse crowd coming in. Um, And I think part of that is great because we do have instructors that look and all different, which is you know, so I, I feel like the, the studio makeup is very diverse. However, we can always do better. And I'm uh, definitely aware of that. And, you know, on our live virtual studio and on demand. And the thing I love most about Pevolve and the method in general is they're always open to feedback and to doing better. And they're also, you know, the method by nature really, we appeal to people if you've had endometriosis, if you struggled with fertility issues, um, if you're going through menopause, really catering to, Meeting her where she's at in her life and all different ways that that manifests itself. So I do respect that the company I think really appeals to people that maybe don't feel like they have a voice or a place in fitness or haven't you know found their their workout. They're now being able to move their body in a safe and sustainable way that helps them feel strong. So I love the method for that reason, but I definitely say it's diverse and we can always do better. Yeah, and I'd say since I've been with the company for the past three and a half years, it's only well, continue to grow in really beautiful ways from the inside out and I I really really respect that about the company and I also take that as a leader in the company as part of my responsibility yeah. to make sure I'm leading that charge and helping, you know, those conversations. I think that's
0: where it starts. And that was like my point with like the teachers at schools. It's like when the people who are in the positions of leadership, those are the ones that can really direct like what's going to happen, like how it's going to grow, right? Like how Mm -hmm. that can really affect change. Um, I saw too that you, I don't know if you still
1: do, but you're teaching in Little Tokyo. Yeah, I was uh, volunteering at the Little Tokyo Center, which is very near and dear to my heart. Because like I said, I, I wanted to, I didn't get pride or, feel the urgency to do so much for my Japanese side until later on in life. And now it's something that I feel like I am seeking out community and connections and especially in California, these different pockets, but I did come across little Tokyo service center and I had the privilege of volunteering and teaching their seniors in this class. And it was the highlight of my week. And it literally is what I would love to do with fitness long-term is to provide it to people that don't have access, don't have means to it. And it was one hour a week and it was the best ever. And I just was able to volunteer and get the the clashes grew every oh. week and it sparked so much joy in my heart but it was it's um a really incredible organization that really helps underserved communities specifically the AAPI community in downtown LA it helps provide housing affordable housing um and you know different recreational causes like fitness and wellness and just incredible organizations
0: how did they do the people that came to classes and were they like elderly like in their 70s yes. and 80s and
1: 70s 80s um I like seniors and incredible. They just did so well, and they were hardworking, and they would show up in anything—sometimes jeans, short, whatever they had—and they were just the best and the most hardworking. And embraced me and would laugh at me because I <laughs> couldn't speak Japanese, and they would teach me. It was just like a beautiful exchange, and it felt I felt so connected to them, um, and so again accepted by them, which is you know like we said sometimes. It can go both ways, but I really felt like they embraced me. And were, it was just, I love them so much. And I hope to get back to them soon. Just uh, at the moment, I'm taking a step away just because of work demands. Yeah, so
0: much going on. Uh, yeah, I bet they yeah. loved the impact that you would have had, that you had would be different if it wasn't a part Asian person, you know, like it, there's some, yeah. they probably, right. They felt that camaraderie and they're like, all right, we're going to go to this like workout class. Um, it's funny. You mentioned the jeans because on a, my, our school commute for, I don't, I haven't seen him in a while, but there was this Asian man. He was probably, I mean, I don't know. You can't really tell age with Asians They're they're often yeah. much, <laughs> they look much younger than they actually are. Yeah. But, um, I mean, my guess would be he's the early sixties, maybe, but he mm-hmm. would be running. I see him running like every morning in a polo shirt and jeans. <laughs> and like, even like he had his belt on, um, yeah. but he was like proper running, not like a shuffle, but like, mm-hmm. jog, like a respectable jog. And it always yeah. made me so happy to see, because firstly, it's just great to see, you know, that he is into exercising and running, but that he was just, it just felt like such an Asian thing that he was doing it in like normal street clothes it was yeah whatever <laughs> to get the job done <laughs> and I'm like well I mean, yeah I guess it. you don't have to wear lycra like he's in cotton yeah. loose fitting but it was just like a funny sight that you wouldn't really see you know I don't know like it's it just felt very Asian <laughs> to, to, yeah. see, to see them running in that but okay I want to ask more about you you mentioned the term mental health earlier in regards mm-hmm. to like your relationship with your mom getting closer. Mm-hmm. And I'm just curious, like, what do you do to just take care of your mental health? Or if there's anything that you feel comfortable talking
1: about? Yeah. Um, well, I tried therapy for the first time this year, I did talk online therapy. And I think the beauty of where we're at with technology, I have so many feelings about technology. But one of the benefits is, yeah, making things like mental health more accessible on your phone. So I tried that this first time this year. And um, I think most of my way of handling things throughout life has been disassociation, uh, or like that Japanese said, just, you know, don't talk about it, handle it, shovel it down and just go, go, go. So I think that for me, processing feelings, admitting I have feelings and talking about feelings has been a pretty big revelation in lots of different uh, components of my life. So for me, um, that has been really interesting just to sit and talk about feelings and your feelings and owning that you have feelings has just been eye-opening to me and I think for me mental health is not measuring my worth in productivity from balancing dancing seven days a week since I was young with school and I would work as well to help contribute to my dance bills I tell people when I was in college I would make my rent Friday Saturday Sunday and still be a full-time student but I would work like 40 hours in three days. And I feel like I've always been at this really high frequency level of operating. So for me, mental health is not measuring my worth and productivity or what I have to bring to the table just professionally. It's taking that time to actually rest and to turn off. That's where I try to focus my mental health for me. Um,
0: And did you seek therapy therapy just because like was something going on or you were just like, Oh, I think this would be a good thing to add to kind of taking care of myself.
1: Yeah. I I think a couple of things is, you know, I've gone through some things like most people have in their lives that have felt pretty monumental in the way that they've shaped me that I've never addressed before. Um, I, I experienced loss at a really young age and didn't do much when I was younger to navigate that. And then truly over the, pandemic and just becoming a more aware adult. Um, I just have a lot of anger towards where the world is right now and with racism and white supremacy. And I really sought out talk therapy for that reason too, is how to handle that. (laughs) You know, I'm getting chills
0: because I, so I went, I started therapy after having my first kid and going through postpartum depression and it was not a proactive thing. It was definitely mm-hmm. like, Oh my God, I'm really struggling. I need support. And in hindsight, I'm like, Oh, it, it, where the language is now with regards to mental health, it is much more just normal. Like it's not this like, Oh, you need urine therapy. That's weird. Right. It's kind of, it's yeah. like normalized, which I think is so great, but it wherever I was in my life and you know, almost a decade ago, like, I I don't feel like it was like that. Um, but thank God that I got there and I'm, I talked to everybody about therapy now. I think it's so wonderful. Mm -hmm. Um, but I, so I took a break when I, when my, my second was born, um, because I knew that like logistically it was going to be difficult to maintain like weekly meetings and whatever. And because like, I, had, it'd been a long time since I'd had uh, acute symptoms, you know, like I, mm-hmm. I continued therapy because I just loved it. And just like kind of what you're talking about, mm-hmm. like just being able to talk about um, feelings and just all of that. It, but it was more like a maintenance. It wasn't like a, I'm in like dire need of support. Mm-hmm. So I felt like, okay, it's a good time to pause. And um, logistically it was gonna be hard, but I also didn't feel like I needed it anymore. Right. In the yeah. same way. But um, the reason I went back to it was because of all the Asian hate crimes and mm-hmm. the anger, <laughs> the anger that you mentioned, I just was like, I didn't know what to do with it. I didn't, I felt scared also walking through New York city, especially like with my kids, I felt really vulnerable. And there these were, you know, like there were daytime attacks just happening in Manhattan, mm-hmm. like Mm -hmm. So many of my, and like, thankfully, none of my friends were violently assaulted, but that's insane Mm. that I even need to make that, (laughs) make that point. But like people were shoved, people had masks ripped off their faces or just yelled at, like, it was just constant, you know? So, um, I was really scared. And, um, the reason I called my therapist and requested sessions back was really just to like, figure out how to process all of this anger and fear and like what to do with it and I think for Asians the last few years um whether we whether we've been super aware of any sort of like racism or microaggressions or whatever um we've held that like it's been part of our like like cellular reality even if you're not going through life feeling like you're constantly discriminated against, right? Just like the little subtle realizations of like, oh, I'm the only Asian person in the room or, Mm -hmm. you know, just, and the last few years just brought all of that to the surface. And I mean, this is why I started this podcast was like, how can I make this conversation bigger than just talking to my friends about it or, you know, to my husband about it? Yeah. And what can I contribute that... Will help humanize our experiences, you know. And I think what's really difficult with racism against Asians prior to like the rise in hate crimes is that it's not it's not been as visible to non-Asians. And layered on top of that is our tendency to not like our parents' tendency or whatever to like not talk about mm-hmm. it. Um, yeah. But just seeing that like that didn't serve us at all <laughs> because that has like what that caused was like vulnerable Asian people being attacked in broad daylight. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that anger, like what I yeah. didn't know what to do with it. And um,
1: I still don't really know what to do with
0: it, to be honest. <laughs> uh,
1: Leah, I don't either. You know, I'm trying to channel it in ways that are just beneficial, like, you know, volunteering for little Tokyo service center and, you know, even just outside our API experience, like just trying to fight the good fight, you know, um for everyone and use my voice and my the privileges that I do have in in the ways that I can. but it's hard, and I just have so much anger because it does it feels like an uphill battle, right? So it's <laughs> it's it can be um definitely discouraging, and I don't think I don't know I, I don't think my rage has gone away, but I think I'm learning to channel it in ways it- that aren't just zoom scrolling and things, you know, putting, putting my, (laughs) putting it to work, you know, Well, I think also like
0: being in movement, like literally moving that energy through your body is huge. Right. Which, so I, when I, um, I've done no other sport or dance or anything in my life until yoga. I mean, I, I worked, I went to the gym and things like that, but I was Mm -hmm. always way too scared to do any sort of like team sport or anything performance wise. (laughs) Um, But I got into yoga and like, as many yoga people do became really obsessed. And I was like, yoga is, yoga is the only worthy exercise because it's about like connecting with yourself and spirituality. And I was like, really on my hot yoga high horse, you know, I kind of be like, oh no, no other forms of workout are the same. Like yoga is better. Anyway, I don't, I don't think that way now, but I wanted to share this was just like a few days ago. I think I I did one of the I think it was an ebb and flow. And let me know if I'm understanding correctly. It's like you have the high burst, like there's like high cardio bursts, like high intensity yes. bursts. That's like the ebb and flow, yes. right? And I don't think mm-hmm. I understood that because I typically would um be scared. I'm like kind of scared of cardio. <laughs> I always, Most people are. <laughs> I've always been, you know, like, not alone. <laughs> yeah. So, um, I, but like ebb and flow in my brain just didn't register as cardio. So I picked that, um, workout was one of yours and, um, you know, found myself like uh, dripping in sweat and, you know, just like I was just doing it. I completed it. I always see the workouts through, even if they're really hard. Um, and at the end of it, I burst into tears. I just was like, I and and that has not happened to me outside of yoga. And it has not happened really outside of like having done yoga a long time ago, pre-motherhood, where I was that obsessed yogi that, you know, I used to practice Mm -hmm. like three hours a day and I was teaching like three to five classes a day, most days. And um, so this is getting to the point of like moving energy through the body. And um, I think a big issue uh, with life, changing when you become a parent is you don't have that time you know your body feels different Mm -hmm. you don't have the energy like that's where I was and like I was really stuck like I would just I think my energy really was stuck Mm -hmm. um and even though I would still do my yoga practice or go to a Pilates class sometimes like it just I think it was barely just kind of like keeping me keeping my head above water and doing that ebb and flow class recently I think it it like unlocked something that I used to be able to access, you know, like a longer time ago in a younger body and a more free life. And I was crying and I was like, Oh my God, like this is what people feel when they dance, when they play their sports, when they do rock climbing, or my husband's an avid runner. Like when he goes, I don't, I mean, I don't think he cries after runs, but <laughs> that like, it was like the movement of energy and um, yeah, I- yeah.
1: Thank you for sharing that. I love and we love, you know, hearing things like that as instructors and teachers. And I think it's one of the best things too about fitness that I want to focus on in this in this realm is the all the benefits you get for out, outside of anything like aesthetic. You know, it's it is to move emotions through the body, it is mental health, it is um carving out sacred time for you to give back to yourself, you know, mentally, physically, emotionally. And I love that you experience that. Thank you. I love that. I mean, truly those moments are but I do what I do so it's nice to hear it
0: (laughs) well thank you for doing what you do and I'm just conscious of our time I mean what I know you've got so much going on it's like people is your main focus right and um you're as a director of training does that mean you are you bringing in new instructors are you guys doing teacher trainings like how do you is there any what is there anything
1: you want to share like coming down the line I mean, we are rapidly franchising, which is very exciting so you'll be seeing us in a lot of new cities, uh, Nashville, Calgary, Canada, Victoria, Canada, um, Carlsbad, San Diego, La Jolla, San Diego, wow. um, just all over Arlington, Virginia, uh, Arizona, eventually. So all, you know, we're rapidly expanding and I do have the privilege to help train all of our instructors across studios and franchise locations. So I am heading to San Diego Monday, Tuesday, Canada the next week. So we'll just be rapidly expanding. And if you can't come to one of our studios, we do have on demand, like you've experienced and live virtual studio. And if anyone's listening in LA, please come say hi to me. Yeah, (laughs) Come come with me in person. But you know that's it we're just expanding and i'm uh, they're keeping me busy which I, I very much appreciate and i love what i get to do so <laughs> oh,
0: well thank you so so much for taking time to have this chat um i mean it's been so good i have so many more questions but maybe i can meet you in person someday and, yeah. and have a real life conversation with you thanks so much for listening to this episode of voices on the side with me leah kim Voices on the Side is produced by Just Breathe. You can find out more at justbreatheproject.com. I would love it if you would tell your friends, rate, review, and subscribe to the show. It's a great way to show your support so we can keep bringing you
1: these amazing conversations.